you know, National Geographic might just be the most well-known and at the exact same time unknown magazine on the planet. It's the most well-known and unknown magazine in print today. What I mean is, with 40 million subscribers every month, it is one of the most popular magazines in history, and at the exact same time, is one of the most unpopular magazines in history. The reason I say that is because nobody actually reads it. Nobody actually reads National Geographic. 87% of the people in the U.S. have never and do never read National Geographic. Even the people who subscribe to the magazine, nobody reads it. Just shows up in the mail, sits there on the coffee table, collects a little dust. Before time, it's packed into a box, put into the garage or in the attic. I think the Van Ruys read the National Geographic because it's in their, it's in their, their, their lake home. So it's, I, I, think, I think they do. They are one of the few. Which is sad that most people don't read it because it's actually a pretty cool magazine. Right? It's this, this glorious repository of photography and history and archaeology and travel, incredible things that, that most people in the world are never going to get exposed to. And yet there they sit, these magazines sit in all of their yellow glory, full of wonders that 87% of the people are never going to see, that they never even imagined existed. My very predictable point is this. The 10 prophetic, poetic Oracles of judgment contained in Isaiah 13 through 23 are the Bible's equivalent to National Geographic. Nobody reads them. Nobody knows those chapters. Here is this glorious repository in chapters 13 through 23 of theology and history and eschatology and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Here in these oracles are contained breathtaking wonders of the majesty of God and the matchless sovereign power with which he rules the nations. And yet there those chapters sit in all of their glory, full of wonders, collecting dust that most people in the church have never and we'll never see. But you will see it. You will see the wonders contained in 13 through 23. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you have seen those wonders in Isaiah 13 through 23. Because so far we've seen four out of ten of these sermons of judgment against the nations called oracles. And these oracles, in a very real sense of the term, they are the best kept secret of the Bible. These are the long-forgotten treasure in the attic or the, the garage of the church. And this morning, we get to oracles 5, 6, 7, and 8. And really, these oracles are kind of like an issue of National Geographic. It's, it's this glorious, beautiful repository of theology and history. And, and, and first, Isaiah takes us to Egypt, that old enemy of the people of God who ruled them for 400 years until Yahweh broke them out at the Exodus. And then Isaiah takes us to Babylon. He takes us east to that up-and-coming nation who is about to rule the entire Middle East in an upset victory over Assyria. And then he takes us further east, down a little south into Edom, nearby domestic terrorists who are a constant thorn in the side of the people of Israel. And then finally, he, Isaiah brings us southeast into the deserts of Arabia, this wealthy and prosperous kingdom who, who made other people rich through trade and exports. Isaiah's got a word for them, too. 
And here's the thing. If the question of Isaiah chapters 7 through 12 is, who will you trust? The answer given in 13 through 23 is, here is who you should not trust. Here's who you should not trust. You should not trust these nations. Do not trust them. Do not fear them. Don't depend on them. Don't imitate them. Don't don't align yourselves with them. Don't make deals with them. Don't compromise with them. Do not be like them. Do not envy them. Did I mention do not trust them? Do not trust them in the sense that you trust them to be and do what Yahweh alone can do. You understand these chapters are simply massive for the people of Israel because the temptation to trust or to fear the surrounding nations is extremely enticing. As you understand, the entire point of these chapters is to free Judah from trusting the nations and to free Judah from fearing the nations. And the effect in your lives should be exactly the same. And if you have ears to hear this morning, it will be the same. No trust. No trusting the nations. No fearing the nations. And so let's go to the text. This morning, I want you to see four effects. Four effects in our lives that happen when we come to grips with the power and authority of God over the nations. Four effects in our lives that happen when we come to grips with God's power and authority over the nations. So let's begin with the first oracle, which is by far going to be the longest one. It is about Egypt. It's oracle number five, which I'm calling Egypt will be confounded, then be saved. Egypt will be confounded, then be saved. Let's take a walk down memory lane, shall we? Oracle number one was all about Babylon. All about Babylon, predicting the rise and fall of Babylon 120 years before they ever even rose to power. Oracles 2 and 3, maybe you remember, they portrayed the destruction of three particularly pernicious nations that had always been a thorn in the side of the people of God, namely the Assyrians, the Philistines, and the Moabites. By the way, those nations no longer exist. Oracle 4 dealt with Assyrians and the Cushites, which is modern-day Ethiopia. And here in Oracle 5, which takes up two full chapters, by the way, is all about the washed-up, over-the-hill, shriveled old man kingdom of Egypt, which used to be the toughest kid on the block, the king of the prom, the greatest kingdom on the face of the planet. And now... They are but a shadow and shell of their former glory. You see, Egypt at this time when Isaiah was writing was a has-been in a world of up-and-comers. Weakened internally by corruption, political chaos. It's not that they weren't powerful. It's that they were nothing like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans who would go on in history to supersede them and to conquer them. And yet, having said that desperate times call for desperate measures. You remember that Judah and everybody else in that day, by the way, was staring down the barrel of Assyria who was on a rampage taking over absolutely everything. But you also remember from back in chapter 7 that King Ahaz of Judah bribed Assyria to pay for his protection. Do you remember that? You see, they, Judah, could be Assyria's dog or they could be Assyria's lunch. They could be owned or eaten by Assyria. Neither option was a great option. And what did Ahaz choose? He chose option A, to be owned by Assyria. That was not his only choice, right? 
He could have chosen, he could have trusted Yahweh to deliver them in a sovereign and supernatural way, but nevertheless, that is the choice he made, and it was going to cost them, and it did cost them hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars every single year to keep Assyria off their backs, out of the land, to keep them from invading and destroying their little nation. And you can imagine this crippled Judah's economy and sent them spiraling into a recession. This is not sustainable. Eventually, they're going to run out of cash, and they're not going to be able to make the payments to Assyria. And should you be delinquent on the payments, the deal will be broken, and lo and behold, here will come the tanks of Assyria to level them to the ground, which is exactly what would happen in about 15 years later in chapter 37. And so knowing that this wasn't sustainable, one of Judah's kings, probably still Ahaz, this guy is a real piece of work, he, get this, he cut a deal with Egypt to now pay them for their protection against Assyria. I mean, this is a total gamble and desperation move, not to mention sad and ironic, right? Think about it. They were going to trust and bribe the very nation that enslaved them for 400 years. They were going to trust and bribe the very same Egyptians that Yahweh absolutely decimated at the Red Sea when he delivered his people. God slaughtered the Egyptians centuries ago. And now you're going to look to them. You're going to look to them who God once destroyed. That doesn't make any sense at all. That'd be like hiring a crippled World War II veteran in a wheelchair to be your bodyguard. There's nothing about this makes sense. This is a really bad idea. And Isaiah does not hesitate for a moment to tell his people so. In fact, he gives his people five logical reasons why they definitely, absolutely should not trust the over-the-hill kingdom of Egypt. If you've got notes, they're in there. Reason number one, they should not trust Egypt. Number one, Egypt will be divided and disillusioned. Egypt will be divided and disillusioned. Starting in verse one. The oracle of Egypt. Behold, Yahweh rides upon a swift cloud, and he will come to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble before him, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And there it is again, that intriguing, curious title for every single one of these oracles, sermons of judgment, namely the word oracle. And you remember that that word Hebrew literally means a burden. It's a burden. This is heavy. This is weighty. This is crushing upon the soul. This is a weighty thing to preach the collapse and desolation of nations, no matter how godless and pagan they really were. And let's just be straight about this. The Egyptians were a terrible people who would just as soon kill you as look at you. And yet they were people, real people with real souls who would really spend eternity somewhere. It's a weighty thing to preach their destruction. And hard times were coming for the people of Egypt. Why? Look again at verse 1. Behold, Yahweh rides upon a swift cloud. And the idols of Egypt will tremble before him. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. You see, Isaiah, Yahweh is pictured riding on a cloud as if it were a chariot. This Indy 500 cloud, a chariot cloud racing to Egypt. It's a picture of judgment. And when God gets there, two things are going to happen. One, the little idols of Egypt are going to rattle on the shelf out of fear. Number two, the heart of the Egyptians will melt and crumble in despair. Why? What's Yahweh going to do when he gets there? Verses two through four. 
God now speaks. I will incite the Egyptians against the Egyptians. And each man will war against his brother, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians will be agitated within them. Note this, I will confuse their counsel. And they will seek their idols and their ghosts and their mediums and their spiritists. I will deliver them into the hand of cruel masters and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. That is incredible. That's absolutely incredible. That might be one of the most astounding displays of the secret sovereignty of God may be found in the Bible. Notice verse 2, Yahweh's visit to Egypt, get this, it would ignite the entire country into chaos and civil war. God would do that behind the scenes, unbeknownst to them. And notice what Yahweh would personally do. Verse 2, I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. Verse 3, I will confuse their counsel. Verse 4, I will deliver Egypt into the hand of cruel masters and a fierce king will rule over them. See this? The invincible, invisible power of God behind the scenes would dismantle and destroy the Egyptian kingdom from the inside out. God would do that. All their schemes for a brighter tomorrow and their plan to make Egypt great again would come to a grinding halt and come crashing to the ground. Look at verse 3. In their despair, the Egyptians would cry out to their gods and their idols and the spirits of the dead for help, wondering why it is that none of their plans ever succeed, having no idea that the monkey in the wrench was, in fact, the God of Israel. Verse 4. Cruel masters and a mighty king would rule over them. Guess what? We know who that is. We know exactly who that is. We know from history that in 715 BC, which was right around this time, that a fierce, vicious, tyrant king from Ethiopia named Shabaka, not Chewbacca, Shabaka, he would invade Egypt with a mighty army and he would bring the wobbly has-been kingdom of Egypt to the ground. This happened in history. And it's revealed in the text before it happened. How's that? So you see the point that Isaiah is making, don't you? I mean, this is compelling to say the least. Why on earth would you trust feeble, has-been, over-the-hill, washed-up kingdom of Egypt for protection when they can't even get their own house in order? Especially when the division and the strife and the chaos and the confusion inside their kingdom was sovereignly caused by Yahweh himself. Especially when they would be invaded and conquered by a tyrannical, vicious king. And Yahweh was the one who sent him. People of God have zero business trusting in Egypt to protect them because bottom line, God was sovereign over the kingdom of Egypt. And we can never hear that too often, can we? That God rules and reigns and causes and controls 
and, and governs and guides every single thing that comes to pass. We can never hear that too often, that he controls even the secret plans and conversations had by kings and politicians. We can never hear too often that a country in chaos is that way because God is there behind the scenes pulling the strings and that nothing, I repeat, nothing in history happens apart from God's decree. And when that is our conviction, when those are the lenses through which we interpret the world and everything that happens, what that does is put a stake in the heart of our fears brings us to the second reason for not trusting in Egypt. Number two, Egypt will be depleted and drained. Egypt will be depleted and drained. And by that I mean they will be drained of their most precious commodity, namely the Nile River. And all the rivers that flow from it and all the rivers that connected to it. Because the Nile River really was the secret of their success. I mean, without the Nile River, Egypt would be just a bunch of nomads living in the desert. You understand the Nile River with all of its rivers flowing from it, connecting to it. It was the jugular vein of their existence. It provided trade, thriving agriculture, fishing industry. It provided wool and clothing. The, the plants that grew around the Nile provided paper that they used for distribution. The entire river system of Egypt was the golden goose, the gift that kept on giving, the bottomless basket of fries at Red Robin. You understand Egypt could only thrive and survive and prosper because of the rivers that ran through their kingdom, which means, which means, get this now, should Yahweh tinker and mess with the intricate river system in Egypt, and should he say, oh, I don't know, dry them up in a sovereignly ordained drought, it would absolutely devastate their country and what was left over of Egypt's kingdom would disappear and they would be nothing more than a third world dump in the middle of the desert. Well, that was going to happen. Verses 5 through 7. The waters from the sea will dry up. The sea there, that's actually the Nile. It was so big, they called it a sea. The rivers, the waters from the river will dry up. And the streams will dry up and become dry. The rivers will become foul and thin out. The streams of Egypt will dry up. The reeds and the rushes will rot away. The bulrushes on the Nile, on the mouth of the Nile, and all of the sown fields of the Nile will dry up, be driven away, and will be no more. Did you notice there seven different words for the water of Egypt? Nine different words to describe what would happen to that water? Verse 5, the waters, the sea, the river would literally dry up and become dry. Verse 6, the canals and the streams would turn into little trickles and smell like death. Verse 7, the thriving vegetation around the Nile would be scorched and withered as well as the crops that were watered by the intricate irrigation system connected to the river. Isaiah simply says at the end of verse 7 that the fields will be driven away and they will be no more. This is devastating state of emergency kind of stuff here for a country whose entire survival leaned upon the Nile. Verse 8, the entire fishing industry would be over. Verse 9, the shepherds who shepherd the flocks in otherwise thriving vegetation around the rivers would lose their flocks in the drought. I mean, this is the end of the wool and clothing industry, not to mention a food shortage and a famine. 
Verse 10, notice the pillars of Egypt would be crushed. He, he means the pillars of society. The entire workforce of the nation of Egypt would collapse to the ground. There would be no more work. There would be no more labor. There would be no more jobs. The whole economy would be in absolute shambles. This is the great depression of ancient Egypt, and it was Yahweh, the one who caused it. He would do that all out of love and affection for his own people to keep them from trusting Egypt to do what he alone could do. Because without his spinach, Popeye is just a wimpy sailor. Without his utility belt, that man's just a freak show in a costume. Without the Nile, Egypt is nothing more than a third world country with some pyramids and a sphinx. The point is, is this really who you want to trust, O Judah? Is this really who you want to depend for protection and safety and security instead of Yahweh? You see, the point is, any alternative objects of trust and hope are literally irrational and illogical. Why would you look to Egypt to protect you when Yahweh is the one who governs their existence? It doesn't make any sense. And, and I think of, by way of application, I think of you, and I think the question could be, maybe a little hokey sounding, but the question could be, what is your Egypt? What is your Egypt? What I mean is, what is the weak and futile Refuge to which, to which you look for safety, for hope, for comfort, for stability, for security, and just the overall assurance that everything is going to be okay. To what do you look? In what do you hope? Put it this way. Answer the following questions. Fill in the blanks. Everything is going to be okay because... What did you say? Everything is going to be okay if. What did you say? Everything is going to be okay when. What did you say? You see, any answer to those questions that does not terminate in God and the supreme authority of Jesus Christ as their final answer is the spiritual equivalent to Judah trusting in Egypt. Oh, church, do not trust your instincts, nor what your eyes see on the surface, but instead trust the sacred text and what it reveals, what God has spoken, because there we find that no matter what our eyes see on the surface, there we find that Jesus Christ has all authority and holds the entire universe into being by the word of his power. Which brings us to the third reason you should not trust in Egypt. Number three, Egypt will be drunk and destroyed by their idols. Egypt will be drunk and destroyed by their idols, because that's the question. That's the question. Would you trust in your financial advisor if he used horoscopes to give you advice? Would you trust your doctor if he consulted tarot cards 
to diagnose your pain? Would you trust in a president to serve and protect you if he used a crystal ball or a Ouija board to make his policies? You better not trust those things or we're going to have a really awkward conversation. And yet, ridiculous though that was, that's exactly what Judah did with the people of Egypt. You see, they looked to Egypt for protection, who looked to their idols for protection. And Isaiah is about to reveal that's absolutely ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, I mean, you realize that the gods and idols of Egypt were just legendary, known all over the ancient Near East. They had a very sophisticated and technical theology. They had thought through everything. They had scholars and scribes and sages and priests and prophets and shamans and sorcerers, not to mention that the Pharaoh was supposed to be a channel of divine power from the gods. And yet, verses 11 through 15, Isaiah takes the idols of Egypt to the woodshed and the people of Judah for trusting in the idol-driven nation of Egypt. Drop your drawers, boys, because you're going to get a whooping from the prophet. Look at verse 11. Surely the princes of Zoan, Zoan was a city, major city in Egypt, the princes of Zoan are fools. And the princes and, and the wise men who give counsel to Pharaoh give stupid counsel. I love that there's a Hebrew word for stupid. Here it is. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of wise men. I am a son of the kings of old. Do you see it? Princes, wise men, counselors of the land. These are the people to help, responsible to help lead the entire country. These are leaders and one of the greatest civilizations in history. And yet, what does Isaiah call them? Avilim. Fools. These guys are idiots. These guys are idiots. <laughs> I mean, Isaiah says that they give stupid counsel. Why would you listen to these people? And then he proceeds to mock these spiritual advisors. Look at verse 11. How can you say to Pharaoh with a straight face, I am a son of wise men. I am a son of the kings of old. What do they claim? This is preposterous. And, and, and pretentious. What the wise men and sages of Egypt claimed, get this now, was to be of royal descent. And why that mattered is because they believed that the power of gods, the power of the gods was channeled through kingly blood. That as descendants of ancient kings, that they had access to secret divine wisdom to which nobody else had access. And Isaiah in verse 11 mocks them and says, how can you even say that with a straight face? That is ridiculous. Because look at verse 12, as if you were speaking to the Pharaoh himself. Where then are your wise men? Let them declare to you. Let them make known to you what is the counsel of Yahweh of hosts against Egypt. In other words, if that's true, Pharaoh, if that's really true, that your sages and your sorcerers and your wise men really know the future... Ask them what they say are the plans and purposes of Yahweh for Egypt. Ask them. Ask them what Yahweh has decided he is going to do to Egypt in the future. Ask them what they say. What do they say? Oh, they don't know, do they? They don't actually know the future, do they? They don't know what God is going to do in the future because they don't actually know the future because the entire spiritual program of Egypt upon which they based their entire way of life was a total fantasy and a fiction. 
This whole thing was just theater. It was superstition. This whole thing was just pretend. And the only outcome, mind you, to which superstitious idolatry will always lead is always chaos and destruction, which is exactly what verse 13 predicts. Look at the text. The princes of Zoan will prove foolish. The princes of Memphis, another city in Egypt, will give false hope. The cornerstone of her tribes will make Egypt stagger. In other words, the very people responsible for the stability of the nation, these, these wise men, these, these princes, the ones who were supposed to give divine counsel to Pharaoh, the cornerstone of society, they would prove foolish and give a false hope, and they would, they would bring Egypt. They would make Egypt stagger like a boxer on the verge of being knocked out. Because notice, look at verses 14 and 15. Egypt would not only fall because of incompetent leadership. Notice, no, they would fall because Yahweh himself would destroy them from the inside out. Why? Why would the sages of Egypt give the very counsel that would lead to their destruction? Notice the sovereignty of God. Verse 14, why will they give bad counsel? Because Yahweh will mix within them the spirit of distortion. And they will make Egypt stagger in all of their work like a drunken man staggering in his own vomit. And there will be no work for Egypt, which the head and the tail and the palm branches and the bulrush may do. Do you see that? The reason why the sages and wise men of Egypt would steer the kingdom of Egypt into the wrong direction is because Yahweh behind the scenes was going to sabotage all their plans for success. All their schemes would backfire. All their ideas would be stupid. All their plans to, to bring success to the country, to regain their former glory, would blow away like smoke in the wind. And the most pitiful picture of all, they would wind up like a drunken man staggering in his own vomit, and it was Yahweh, the one who caused it. Interestingly, if you're into this kind of thing, that word for vomit in Hebrew is spelled like it sounds. The word in Hebrew sounds like someone is vomiting, just because that's interesting. <laughs> Verse 15, there would be nothing, nothing that Egypt could do to reverse the destruction that would come upon them. The destruction would be irreversible. And you see the point. The point is, really? Really? This is the nation to whom you're going to look. This is the nation, O people of Judah, upon whom you are going to depend for security and safety and protection and power, seriously? A nation whose entire way of thinking is rooted in pagan superstition, not to mention a nation who Yahweh himself would dismantle and destroy from the inside out. This is ridiculous. There's nothing logical about this. Nor does it put Yahweh on display as a treasure. And that's the real crime. That's the real issue, isn't it? I mean, you understand here that from the standpoint of the nations, because of Judah's lack of faith, Yahweh looked like any other tribal deity. Judah feared like everybody else. Judah panicked like everybody else. 
Judah looked to pagan powers to protect them like everybody else. And the result of that is that they made the God of Israel look weak and incompetent and common and mundane. And this will not do. This will not do. And I'm sure, thinking of your lives now, I'm sure that tarot cards and horoscopes and palm readers and crystal balls, I'm sure that has no appeal to you. I'm sure that you are not persuaded by those things at all, nor should you be. And even those who claim the gift of prophecy today, those who in certain Pentecostal circles claim they have a direct line to God outside the pages of Scripture, they're not legitimate either, nor should you listen to them. The question is, what about political news anchors from your favorite news feed? Do you treat them the same way that Egypt treats their sorcerers? They have the magic words. They have the insight. If they give comfort, then I truly do have comfort. Do you look to them as priests and shamans to give you comfort and security? Do you look to earthly judges and politicians to provide what Yahweh alone is able to supply? Because you understand, when we do that, when we fear like everybody else, when we panic like everybody else, when we look to things outside of God like everybody else, we make Christ and God look common and mundane and weak and defenseless like any other tribal deity, and this will not do. This will not do. But you see, if the last three years on the planet prove anything, it is that the world is panicked and confused and scared, and they are precisely because they do not know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here now is your chance. Here now is your golden opportunity to witness to the world that one day a sovereign savior will come on the scene of history and single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. That is the most unashamed message on the planet to preach. And you must preach it. Which brings us to the fourth reason for not trusting in Egypt. The fourth reason, number four, Egypt and Assyria will one day be devoted and dedicated to Yahweh. Egypt and Assyria will one day be devoted and dedicated to Yahweh. Which means, yes, you heard me right, one day the Egyptians and the Assyrians would come to saving faith in Yahweh. And I'll have you know, this day has not happened yet. But it will happen. Look at verses 16 and 17. In that day, a day in the future that has not yet come, in that day, Egypt will be like women trembling and fearing before the shaking, insert the word fist there, the fist of Yahweh of hosts, which he will wave against it. And the land of Judah will become to Egypt a terror or a confusion. Everyone who remembers it will be terrified by it because of the counsel of Yahweh of hosts, which he will counsel against it. What are we even seeing here? You know what I think this is? I think this is a, another picture of what Isaiah showed us all the way back in chapter 2. When Yahweh will show up to the planet in person and rule all things from a throne on the earth. In other words, 
Biblically, theologically, we stand back. I believe that this here is part of a, a passage that describes the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, Egypt will be in absolute fear and terror because like then, just like now, they are a wicked nation in rebellion to Jesus Christ. Egypt is, at this moment, over 95% Muslim and Islam is hostile and irreconcilable with the gospel. And yet, when Jesus Christ arrives, Egypt will be so stricken with fear and terror that they will come to their senses and get this, they will yield their lives to the king in allegiance and faith. Look at verses 18 and 19. This is incredible. In that day, five cities in Egypt, in the land of Egypt, will be speaking the tongue of Canaan. And they will swear allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. And there's a grammatical challenge here. Some of your Bibles say one, will be, one city will be called the city of destruction. There's a textual variant that says that one city will be called the city of the sun. So it could indicate that this is the chief city that gets saved out of all the other cities. Uh, verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh, an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar beside its boundary to Yahweh. What are we seeing here? You see it. This is the future conversion and faith of Egypt in Yahweh of Muslims. Entire cities are going to repent one day when Jesus Christ returns. And you notice that comment there that five cities will be speaking the language of Canaan. You know what that is? I think that means they learn Hebrew. And they learn Hebrew to study the scriptures. This has never happened in history, which means it is going to happen. Verse 19, they will build altars and pillars and memorials of worship to Yahweh. He will be their treasure and their prize and the object of their affections. Egyptians who have just always, always worshipped false gods since they showed up on the scene of history and since 639 have worshipped the false god Allah in the future day. The back of Islam will be broken and they will worship Yahweh alone. Verses 20 through 22 portray how Egypt will get saved. And it will describe their, their devoted worship in the kingdom. They will know Yahweh. They will be known by him. They will offer offerings, pay their vows. There's this strange comment in there about getting disciplined and chastised. I think even in the kingdom, they'll get chastised by Yahweh, but they'll come back to him. And nothing like this has ever happened in history, and yet it will happen because it has been ordained. And if this prophecy was surprising, to the people of Judah, and it would be surprising. Nothing could have prepared them for what Isaiah says next. Look at verses 23 through 25. Look what's going to happen in the kingdom of the Messiah in that day. There it is again. That little code for prophecy. That little signal for what's to come. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come to Egypt, and Egypt to Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve or worship with Assyria. In that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, and it will be a blessing in the midst of the land, which Yahweh of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed is my people Egypt, and the work of my hands Assyria, and my possession Israel. That. That, 
that is why they don't need to fear Egypt or Assyria, and they do not need to trust Egypt and Assyria, because one day Egypt and Assyria will love and worship Yahweh himself. You see, it's not just that they will get saved, but that Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together in the kingdom. Do you see that? One day they're going to build a super highway between Egypt and Assyria. Not for trade, not for buying, not for selling, not for bartering, but as an access road to take trips to one another's countries to worship together. Verse 23, Egypt will serve Assyrians. Assyrians will serve Egyptians. Verse 24, Israel will join them as a third party in their worship celebrations. I mean, think about this. In the kingdom of Christ, former Muslims are going to have worship conferences together and worship the glorious salvation achievements of Yahweh through his king. Verse 25, Yahweh calls Egypt my people. He calls Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel my possession. Do you feel how staggering this is? This is absolutely incredible. Egypt and Assyria are at this moment Muslim peoples who hate Christ and in violent opposition to Christianity. The people of Israel are in hardened unbelief and hate their own Messiah. There's no way these people are going to get saved. And yet one day, one day, God will intervene in history like he has never intervened ever before. And even the most unlikely of people will get saved and worship King Jesus in the glory of his kingdom. It's incredible. You got hard-hearted people in your life? Blind, dead, savagely unbelieving people at your work? People in your neighborhood, people in your family, maybe even people in your own home, people who you just think it is impossible for them to get saved. And guess what? It is impossible for them to get saved. It will not happen by mere human means and power. And yet here in the text is proof that God can and does conquer the depraved human heart. Here now in the text is your compelling gospel nudge to keep preaching, to keep proclaiming, to keep praying, to keep pleading with God to open up the eyes of blind people so that they yield their lives to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Because if these people can get saved, anybody can get saved. Which brings us to the fifth reason. Fifth reason why Egypt you should never trust in the has-been, over-the-hill kingdom of Egypt. Number five, Egypt will be driven away and deported. Egypt will be driven away and deported. Because, you know, sometimes, sometimes to get people's attention, you have to do more than just be nice and tap them on the shoulder. Sometimes you have to get naked stand in the middle of the street and preach. Which is exactly what Isaiah does under Yahweh's orders. Look at verses 1 through 4. 
In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it, in that time Yahweh spoke by the hand of Isaiah, son of Amot, saying, Go, Isaiah, and loosen the sackcloth from around your waist, and your sandals remove from your feet. And thus he did, walking around naked and barefoot. And Yahweh said, as my servant Isaiah walks around naked and barefoot three years as a sign and an omen against Egypt and against Cush, thus the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Prophets just kind of wrote whatever, didn't they? No formalities here, no PC language here, just everything there. Get naked, Isaiah. Get naked. And go out in the town square and preach naked. Preach in the nude. It's very interesting. You know what this was? This was street theater. This was performance art. This was a graphic way to say in the, most prov- in the most provocative and vulnerable way, this is what happens to nations that trust in pagan powers over and against the sovereign power of Yahweh. That's the scenario. You notice there in verse 1 that Isaiah includes this seemingly random event that Assyria invaded and conquered a city called Ashdod. You see that in verse 1? What is Ashdod? You know what that is? This is very intriguing. Ashdod was a Philistine city in the southwest just on the border on the other side of Egypt. And what we see here in verse 1 is that Assyria leveled them to the ground and destroyed them. Why did he do that? Because guess what? The Philistines also, just like Judah, paid the Egyptians for protection. King Sargon of Assyria didn't like that. So he sent a little army to destroy them and level them to the ground. And when that happened, that should have been a very clear message to the people of Judah that not only could Egypt not protect the Philistines, not only could they not protect Judah, they couldn't even protect themselves because guess what? Assyria was coming for Egypt. It's incredible. And actually, it wasn't even Assyria that destroyed them. It was Ethiopia, but nevertheless, nevertheless. And so for three years, for three years until Egypt was leveled to the ground and destroyed, Isaiah would preach naked. Maybe not all day, every day, but part of each day for three years, he would walk around with no clothes on until he riled up enough of a crowd being angry with him, telling him to put some clothes on. And when the crowd was just big enough, then he would stand on a box and preach this, this right here. This is what happens to nations who trust in anything other than Yahweh. This is what's going to happen to Egypt. This is what's going to happen to Cush. And look at verses 5 and 6. Three years later, How would the people of Judah respond when they got word that the very washed-up empire they paid off to protect them had now crumbled to the ground? What would they say? Then they, the people of Judah, will be filled with terror and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and because of Egypt, their glory. 
And they will say in that day, behold, thus is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? (laughs) Which would have been the exact right response when that happened. Here's what makes this so profound. Is that God reveals three years before the destruction of Egypt as a sign to the people of Judah that they should stop immediately the payments to Egypt for protection and instead trust in Yahweh alone. It was prophecy. I mean, it's, it's incredible to me that, that God stripped everything away from them. Everything away from the people of Judah so that they would no longer trust in powers other than him. And this oracle reminds me that just as God stripped away everything the people of Judah trusted in, and as the walls closed in around them, it reminds me that the same is happening to us. The walls are closing in around us, church. One by one by one, The restraints that previously kept the church safe from hostile treatment and even persecution have been and are being lifted as we speak. The gates of comfort and security are closing in America. And trust me when I say they are closing fast. As a family, as a church, we have got to be prepared. They tried to fragment the church with the COVID lockdowns and government overreach. Social justice and woke agenda is dividing churches all over the world. Several of you have come here in the last year who left churches where that very thing was happening. Transgender movement is only going to increase in its attacks on the church, and they are coming for the church. And our response should be four things. One, spend as much time in the word as possible. Not only individually, but also as a family. Two, spend as much time with the church as possible. Do not forsake the assembling of the body. Do not do that. If you've been doing that, you need to repent of that. Because the lone wolf is the dead wolf and it will ruin you. Number three, Spend as much time talking to individual lost people as you can. Don't just be nice and don't just be a friend to them. Be an evangelist to them. And number four, spend as little time on social media as you can. Because you understand the most precious commodity that you have is your time and your attention. And the evil one is working overtime as we speak to pollute and deceive and distract and destroy you and our global mission. Which brings me somehow in 30 seconds to preach oracles 6, 7, and 8. Can I do it? Let's watch and see. All right, I'm grouping them all together. Oracles 6, 7, and 8, I'm calling Babylon, Edom, and Arabia will be conquered, shattered, and slain. Babylon, Edom, and Arabia will be conquered, shattered, and slain. Some of you are texting lunch plan partners and saying, uh, we're going to be a few minutes late. I'm going to work hard here. Okay, here's the thing. If these oracles are like an issue of National Geographic, Isaiah is progressing us to different countries now, moving us to different countries, and to show that Yahweh is not only sovereign over those countries, but he will overthrow them and bring them to a violent end. Oracle number six is all about Babylon. 
all about Babylon, which is interesting because the first oracle was also all about Babylon. And just to summarize, basically what it is is that uh, Isaiah predicts both the rise and fall of Babylon 120 years before they ever even rise to power, which proves three things, doesn't it? One, God is real. Number two, God is sovereign. And number three, his word is true and can be trusted. Oracle number seven is all about the Edomites, or a place called Duma, who were descendants of Esau. Remember him? And these were a wicked and despicable people. These were a wicked apostate people who had always been a thorny people for the nation of Israel. And the thing about Duma and, or Edom is that they were at this particularly strategic intersecting trade route between Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Middle East, and should Edom or Duma be overtaken by the Assyrians, that would cause great harm and damage and panic and worry for the rest of the nations who looked to Arabia for their resources and supplies. What's interesting is that oracle number seven is the shortest and the weirdest. All right, look at the text, verses 11 and 12. The oracle of Duma. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Seir is a, play, a city in, in Edom. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman, who is Isaiah, says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. That's it. That's, that's the oracle. It's pretty cryptic and weird, and yet what I think it is is this. I think it is a warning and a subtle call to repentance. It's as if Isaiah is a watchman standing on a guard tower and someone from Edom comes to him and says, how far gone is the night? How far gone is the night? It's repeated twice for emphasis. This is passion. These are worried people. I think the basic question is, what's going to happen to us? Are we in danger too? And I think Isaiah's response is, kind of translating it here, I think his response is, Look, you are a people in rebellion against Yahweh. And if you ask me now what your future is, you're not going to like what you hear. But should you repent and come back later and inquire again after you repent, well, that's going to be a very different conversation. That's the message. Repent while there is still time. Some of you need to repent and yield to Christ while there is still time. Finally, oracle number eight. Verses 13 through 17, which is all about Arabia. Arabia, they weren't a particularly powerful nation, militarily speaking, but they had money. They had lots and lots and lots of money, and it would, very be, it would be very easy to depend on them and to look to them for security because they were super wealthy. And yet, and yet, what this oracle reveals is that even mighty and wealthy Arabia would be slaughtered by the battalions of Babylon. End of oracle. Don't trust them. And don't fear them. So you stand back and you look here, and I'm pretty much done. You, you look at these oracles, and, and you see what God is doing, right? God is graciously stripping his people of everything to which they would be tempted to cling instead of Yahweh, wasn't he? What God was doing here was forcing them to go back to the essence of their faith, which is to trust in Yahweh for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. And that has effects in our lives. Four effects. Four effects in our lives that grip us when we come to grips with God's sovereign power and authority over the nations. These are going to go quick. They're in your notes. Number one, God's 
power and authority provokes trust in him alone. God's power and authority provokes trust in him alone. And, and you understand, the crazier things get out there, the more important this becomes. Things may or may not get better in two years when we vote for a new president. And if we look at the cues from the Bible, things are likely not going to get better. Which means we must trust the silent, invisible, sovereign providence of God that governs everything that comes to pass, knowing that no matter what it is that happens to us, God will bring us safely into the kingdom of his son. Effect number two. God's power and authority over the nations purges the poison of fear from our souls. It purges the poison of fear from our souls. You see, every headline that tempts us to panic, and there are many that do that, in that moment of fear and panic, we have about two seconds to make a very crucial decision. In that moment of fear and panic, we must remember these oracles and we must use them as lenses by which we interpret the world and everything that happens. Bottom line, the nations do nothing unless it has been ordained by God. And when, we, when those are the lenses through which we view the world, we find that the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. Number three. God's power and authority over the nations promotes mission and the proclamation of the gospel. It promotes mission and the proclamation of the gospel. You understand, these oracles free us to declare with unblushing clarity and boldness the gospel. Because we know that all nations, even the nation that we are in right now, belong to Jesus Christ. They are His don't you see, the Father already chose his elect. The Son already paid for the elect. And all we've got to do is find them by indiscriminately proclaiming the gospel to everyone. This is a win-win, no-lose mission that we've been given, number four. God's power and authority over the nations prepares us to enjoy the kingdom of his Son prepares us to enjoy the kingdom of his son. Because that's where all human history is headed, you know. That is the finish line. That is the happily ever after of the plan. Paradise lost will be regained. Israel apostate will be restored. The nations condemned will be redeemed. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign on a throne, matchless and sovereign, and it will be, and he will be, everything we have been waiting for. Praise God, then, for the National Geographic of Isaiah 13 through 23. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, who knew that such gold could be found in such ocean caves? Help us, O oh Lord. Help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. Help us to look to you. O oh Lord, we are bombarded by fears and all lies all the time. Help us to look to your word, and would you transform us, O oh Lord, to be a bold, compassionate people, richly indwelt, by your word, and who proclaim your word, knowing that no matter what it is that happens to us, you will bring us safely into your invincible kingdom. We need you and we look to you in this time of urgent need. 
In Christ's name, amen.